This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is brought to you by Netflix. Making a Murderer is an unprecedented new documentary series that takes viewers inside a high-stakes criminal case where reputation is everything and things are never as they appear. All episodes now streaming only on Netflix. Experience the most delicious, entertaining, and bizarre parts of life in the big city with New York Magazine's collection of podcasts, available exclusively from Panoply. Tune into the Grub Street podcast for restaurant trends that'll soon be sweeping the country. Catch exclusive interviews with the stars of your favorite TV shows with the Vulture TV podcast. And check out Sex Lives for intimate discussions of sex in the real city. It's like taking a trip to New York from the comfort of your earbuds. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazelle Amami. On this week's show, we're revisiting Orange is the New Black and the growing female-friendly trend in scripted television. Then we're joined by Nick Sandow, Orange is the New Black's Joey Caputo, who recently wrapped filming on the show's fourth season. That's all coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. As usual, I'm here with Vulture TV columnist Margaret Lyons and TV critic Matt Solar Seitz. Hey, Gazelle. Hi, Matt. Hi, guys. Hi, Margaret. So looking back at the year, we've seen a lot of shows starring and made by women on television this year. And I was just thinking back to a few years ago when Girls first premiered and how crazy it felt to have a show like that. The last time we'd really seen that was Sex and the City. It's just a different show. I think they're just like hugely, hugely different. And I think one of the reasons we're always prone to compare female-led shows to one another is because there's such a paucity of them. And so even though right now it feels like, oh, we're having this boom in that, I think by strict numbers it's still an incredibly small fraction of the shows we're actually seeing. Luckily, a lot of these shows are excellent shows, and they're they're more present in the conversation about what the current state of television is. But I don't think we're reaching anywhere close to some kind of gender parity. Can we talk a little bit about some of the shows we have seen that have been great? Sure. I mean, I think obviously like Orange is the New Black is probably, if not the top of the list, at the top of the list. That's the 800-pound gorilla in this conversation. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. It's so unusual because it's not only a female driven show, but it's also hits all these other, you know, things that TV creators are trying to crack, like diversity mm-hmm. and also class. You have these three elements that, you know, people don't usually tackle on television and they're just making it seem really like, wow, that's super interesting to do. And why aren't more people doing it? And they're doing it all in one show. It's a very impressive show. And it also is a very populist show in its approach. And, mm-hmm. you know, in previous podcasts, we've talked about it in relation to MASH, but it also has a lot in common with other institutional shows. It's an institutional show. And although the core cast is so so beloved and a lot of them have won awards that I can't imagine them going anywhere, it's conceivable that this show could run forever and eventually the cast could entirely turn over because that's the way prisons work. You know, it's like yeah. it could be a show like a like an ER where you get to the end of it and there's only a few original cast members. And and that yeah, means that, that and that's that very and it's very durable in that respect. And that's also, I think, a triumph of a different kind because a lot of times shows that are built around a particular performer or just the creator herself 
they're really, really fragile because they're dependent on those one or two people. Mm-hmm. And and it's very, very smart to create a show that, if it's well done, can kind of be an in, a self-perpetuating engine. At this point, I think the conversation this last season was partially about how you could easily imagine the show without Taylor Schilling, who was our entry point in the beginning, but now people don't really like her very much. I mean, look, I'm not... I still think there's a lot of story left in the Piper arc, and I think the idea of the show not having Piper at all is, like, while I can imagine it, it doesn't really feel like a great idea to me necessarily, especially because we haven't come anywhere close to running out of juice on her, you know? I think that... Especially if we think about sort of how much time has elapsed since she's been incarcerated. It's a very short period of time, even though in our, you know, actual time, like, that has progressed. You know, the more I think about how the show is constructed, the more it reminds me of Lost, where we have our sort of day-to-day trials within isolation, right? We're in this sort of secluded, we're cut off from mainstream society in a lot of ways, and everyone is playing his or her cards extremely close to the chest, Telling people a lot about yourself is dangerous. You're not sure who is on your side. You don't know when those people might be coming or going. And then over the course of the series, as we're experiencing that time, we're also getting flashback episodes for different characters that illuminate and sometimes surprise or have a twist on how that person came to these circumstances. And I think... Hmm. Obviously, like Orange is the New Black benefits from not having a central, uh, a sensible mystery. And so that sort of obviates the need for that part of the story to move forward. But I do think it's worth thinking about it in the terms of like how do we learn from what loss did wrong and and how do we think about how orange is the new black is correcting a lot of those mistakes mm-hmm. and i think easing mm-hmm. off on piper is one of the ways they're correcting for some of lost errors of overfocus on jack cuz i think eventually the show was like we got too many jack episodes <laughs> right and i well think... and he was he was tediously <clears throat> tediously angry and sour yeah and he he wound up being sort of so much less interesting than a lot of the other characters. And so then it was like, oh, here he is getting his tattoos. It was like, oh my God, I do not care at all. <laughs> um, right, and I don't think we're there with Piper, certainly, but I think the show has done a better job of creating a bigger, a big cast and giving everybody so much depth. And, and there's still plenty of people we don't have backstories on, you know, and plenty of people where we have backstory but don't actually know what they've been convicted of as far as their crimes go. And at the end of last season, a whole busload of new sure, inmates arrived. arrived. So we have yes. plenty others. more to work with. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, I like this lost road that we're traveling down. And I want to go back to something you were saying, Margaret, but this idea of there's not a central mystery. There isn't in the sense of lost, you know, what is the nature of the island? But there are all of these individual mysteries, which are the backstories of the characters. And and another show, and this is a little, maybe a weird comparison, but it sort of reminds me of those opening, those prologues on Six Feet Under, where they would show how the person who was going to be that week's client in the mortuary died. Oh, yeah. And you always think, and, and they got to the point where they were very good at making you think you knew who was going to die what their story, how they were going to die, what their story was, and all of that business, and then they'd sucker punch you, and something else would happen. And and I feel like Orange is the New Black is practicing that kind of storytelling with regard to the individual characters. And I've gotten to the point where now I feel like I know the show well enough that I understand that the the face that is presented to me the first time that I meet an inmate is not their real is not their original face. I don't want to say their real face; it may be who they've become now that they're in in jail. Mm-hmm but it's probably not who they were before they went down the road that landed them in jail. 
And you can't take anything for granted in that respect. Let's go back to our discussion of female-centric shows and what we've seen in, you know, this year and also maybe the last couple years. Because I wanted to talk about if you've sensed an, a, a difference in those shows we are seeing now versus shows we saw, say, 10 years ago. Like, so we've, we've seen shows like Transparent, created by and starring many women as well as men. Unreal. Unreal. Mm-hmm. Jane the Virgin. Crazy Broad, Ex-Girlfriend. Bro- Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Broad City. Amy Schumer. Mm-hmm. Amy Schumer. Jessica Jones. Yeah. Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Yep. And then we have all the Shondaland shows. There's a lot of good stuff out there. Do you see this as kind of different from shows we saw like Alias, say, or Felicity or Veronica Mars, shows that were really, or The Good Wife even? I don't know. I think a show like The Good Wife, that's actually really run by a man and a woman. Right. And I'm always reluctant to sort of, you know, attach that kind of a label to a show. Like this is a, because this show is run by a man, that it's a male show. Like I feel like there are a lot of shows that don't necessarily fit that description. And to name just one recent show that did have a female showrunner, um, The Killing, I didn't, when I was watching The Killing, I didn't necessarily feel like this is a, you know, this is a perspective that I can only get from a female mm-hmm. showrunner. That said, I can't imagine Orange is the New Black with a man in charge. I mean, for one thing, it probably wouldn't exist in the first place. Right. And and, and if it did, it'd just be a different show. And and it would probably be, frankly, given my skepticism of my own gender, it'd probably be a much more exploitive and stupid show. Look, can men write good female characters? Yes. And can women write good male characters? Yes. My stake in the game is mostly that I just want to hear more kinds of stories about more kinds of people told in more kinds of ways. And I think the fastest and and fairest way to do that is to include more kinds of storytellers in the first place. I also think, like, as we go forward, something else that's important is to see women of color in charge of shows. Obviously, we have Shonda Rhimes as sort of our, like, torchbearer here, but... That's like the fact that we're like, oh, and Shonda Rhimes, you know, I'm looking forward to the day where I can rattle off as long a list as I could for white male showrunners. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, we're not even close. Right. And so that's why I think a lot of those discussions about like peak TV wind up being really, really discussions about like feeling like you see a lot of the shows that like, you know, the head of FX wants. And the truth is like he like those shows are male oriented, male written, male created, male starring shows and do we have a lot of those fucking yeah so do we have peak that sure i'll grant that premise i suppose like (laughs) why not but in terms of like oh we've got our bases covered for other kinds of shows hell no i think one of the differences and i don't know that it's necessarily a time thing i think it's more just we have more shows now than ever and like sort of every day of television is the most television there has ever been Um, (laughs) right it's like how the population of the earth only goes up (laughs) yeah and so one of the things that i've really liked about a lot of shows this season or in the last season or two has been what the focus is on for our female leads so i think you know we've had plenty of interesting good shows about women right like i don't I don't think I've had enough of them, but there's there are many of them. And one of the things that's shifted a little bit recently is taking some of the onus off romantic fulfillment mm-hmm. and putting more of the onus on either professional fulfillment, sort of self-actualization, those ideas. You know, so even on a show like like Orange is New Black, where we do have plenty of romantic storylines, both hetero and homosexual storylines, you know, fundamentally, it's not driven by who will end up together and and how will the love of a perfect partner take away my pain, right? right like, no. That's not <laughs> present no. at all on that show. And Unreal, which does have a pretty central romantic storyline, 
doesn't actually feel driven by that romance to me at all. And instead, it's very much about getting your own shit together versus, say, was a sort of a stretch, but your Ally McBeal kind of vibe where we have, or yeah. if we're going to compare even the crazy ex-girlfriend to Ally McBeal, which is maybe a little bit more one-to-one. Mm-hmm. Not exactly, but a little. Right. Fundamentally, like, obviously crazy ex-girlfriend has that I moved to this place for this guy and Ally McBeal, same thing. She moves to Boston to ch- chase after her now married, she believes, love of her life. But on Ally McBeal, like, that's that's home base and it will always come back to in some way Ally fundamentally framing the world as how can I be with Billy Mm -hmm. and on crazy ex-girlfriend the arc of the show is watching Rebecca shed herself of that and we know that right now she's like I gotta be with Josh but we also know and and if you listen to our uh, special Rachel Bloom episode where we talk at length (laughs) about this we also know that like what's really happening and, and the sort of resolution that that is down the road for this character is not romantic driven it's driven by her learning how to live in her own self and her sort of coming to terms with everything that's sort of rattling around in her head and not not ultimately the happy ending being like standing on the altar or whatever like in the right. mermaid mm-hmm. or something you know <laughs> yeah and recognizing that other people exist and that their lives have value that's and that's something that a lot of the great tv shows are concerned with and, uh, you know, Seinfeld and, and The Sopranos and Mad Men were all concerned with that, too. And I think ER was a lot of time concerned with that. I'm intrigued by, on Orange is the New Black, the relationship between comedy and drama. And that's something I don't think the show gets enough praise for. Like, it's there are almost times where it's like you're seeing... It's like Oz by way of, like, a reality show where people are, you know in each other's faces all the time, you know? Like, and I, and I often wonder if that's not part of the reason why there was such an instant, wide, receptive audience of men and women for this show, even though it's in a genre, the prison picture, that is usually a male genre. Like, even movies that are about women in prison, Durr, obviously, are, are things that guys watch. Oz was not a show that was uh, necessarily going to draw the same audiences as uh, Friends. You know, something like that. <laughs> yeah. And that's a that's like a gender stereotypical way of looking at it, but it's but the numbers bear it out. But Orange is the New Black hasn't encountered a whole lot of that that I can see. And I and I actually know a lot of guys who watch this show for the intrigue. Like for the same reason that they probably watch uh an action series. Like who you know, and it mm-hmm. is a power it's a show about power at the same time that it's a show about relationships and identity, which is interesting. Look, at the end of the day, like I could give a shit what men watch. Like I like I feel like we orient so much of our culture around like what will men say? What will men think? Will men come to that? Do men yeah. like pizza? It's like I don't give a shit. Like, <laughs> like I'm gonna be the change here and just be like, yeah. fuck you. Like I don't care. It was like, what if we made an amazing show and no men cared? It's like I would be fine. Like that's okay. So I think like bending over backwards, you're <laughs> like, why do men like this excellent show that's beautifully written, that's really smart, yeah. that's really has like aggressive contemporary storytelling that also fits very neatly into um, an aspect of like political culture right now, where we're talking a lot about incarceration reform. Where I think, in terms of like how America approaches human rights, I think people are talking more about like the school to prison pipeline, and people are talking more about hyper incarceration, racist drug law policies, all of these things. And and orange is the new black, like like fits in that conversation in a way that I don't think the show could have predicted it would. I don't think there's a causal relationship, right? Like, I don't think Orange is the New Black created this conversation about incarceration reform, but I don't think it harms the conversation about incarceration reform. I think we have a lot of stories in 
you know, like news and certainly within like political discourse that demonize and dehumanize people who are incarcerated. And I think Orange is the New Black is a very welcome antidote to that to remember that, first of all, there are lots of structures in place that prohibit people from uh, having fair representation, having accurate representation, having like a life with more outcomes, for example, you know, and or just or just having the powers that be or the institutions that supposedly serve them give a shit. Yeah. About anything that happens to them. Sure. We've seen like a lot of institutional abuse within Orange is the New Black, and this isn't a minimum security prison. Some of it is like right show at the right time. I think we are all very ready for a little like a show that had something to say, not just as a show, but but sort of culturally and politically. And I think Orange like hits a lot of those like like pleasure receptors in in the critic brain and in the huge TV fan brain. Yeah, and it also hits on this the the relationship between the individual and, and the institution that again was such a great part of of shows like ER and MASH. And rewatching MASH again recently, it's amazing how many of the storylines are about trying to get things that they need and not being able to get them for reasons that really they have no control over. And a lot of times it's just because of indifference or there's a mistake. Like they need a jeep, they need they need more uh, they need more hemoglobin, they need more bandages. There's a sewer line that's busted, and they need somebody to come out and fix it so the camp doesn't smell like shit. I mean, you name it, and they can't get anybody to even listen to them, you know. Or they they think they're going to get the thing that they need, and that's taken away from them because some other camp pulled a string that they can't pull. And that kind of thing happens on Orange is the New Black all the time. And that's the sort of thing that I think can make a show relatable to people who necessarily maybe don't have any kind of contact with that world. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's why so many people could relate to MASH. Like, the overwhelming majority of Americans have never been anywhere near a situation like the one depicted in MASH, MASH, but they've all been in a situation where their boss is not listening to the problems that they are telling them about that affect the fate of the institution, and it's frustrating. Yeah, if you haven't encountered an indifferent bureaucracy, I envy your life. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> well, we're going to switch gears a little and talk to one of the men on Orange is the New Black. But first, a message from our sponsors. This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is brought to you by Netflix. More than a decade in the making, a new series exposes a real-life thriller set in America's heartland. Making a Murderer follows Stephen Avery, a man from the wrong side of the tracks, who was exonerated after serving 18 years in prison. His release triggered major justice reform legislation, and he filed a lawsuit that threatened to expose corruption in local law enforcement. Go behind the scenes with the directors of Making a Murderer on their companion podcast, now on iTunes, and watch all episodes on Netflix now. Nick Sandow, who plays Joey Caputo on Orange is the New Black, the warden at Litchfield, had his role pretty unexpectedly fleshed out in season three. And me and Margaret are here with Nick Sandow from Orange is the New Black. Nick, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Can you talk a little bit first about your arc last season? Yeah. You know, I was signed on to do possibly three mm-hmm. of them. In season three? No, in, in oh, season, season one. one. Oh, okay. oh, wow. I, was gonna, I wasn't contracted. You know, they say possibly three. You know, you're lucky mm-hmm. if, if that happens. And I, I think I did 12 of them the first season. And so I've been consistently blown away yeah. I'm like uh, they keep growing you know he just keeps growing and they keep giving him more and more dimension so i'm i'm amazed yeah and i'm learning a lot too as an actor you know that's there's something to not knowing you know what's down down the road and 
If you told me in season one that Caputo was going to play in a, a band called Side Boob, <laughs> in season two, I'd say, no, you're crazy, right? I would probably reevaluate things. So it's really uh, a lesson. On a show with so just such a huge cast, how much time do you actually end up spending filming for any particular character? Like, and how do, how, what is the dynamic like between everyone? We do nine-day episodes. Okay. And I, wor- I work a lot. It's very strange because I'm always separate from everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm separate from the girls. And I'm, uh, we have two different, uh, we shoot in Queens and we shoot up in Rockland. And more and more we're shooting up in Rockland. So uh, we, they took over a child psych, closed psych hospital up there. And they were doing all the exteriors. You know, they made the exterior look like a, a minimum security prison. And a lot of the offices, like my office is up there and has been up there from the beginning. So I'm up there a lot. And the girls are mostly in studio. They're not up in Rockland mm-hmm. as much as I am. So sometimes it's separate. And and you feel that a little bit. You feel like, you know, the the, the ghetto girls work together and the the, 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 the Latina girls, they, they work a lot together. Mm-hmm. So it is separate that way in some strange way. Or it feels that way for makes, me. And I yeah. always feel like on the outside. And when I am working with them, I'm not usually listening to them. I'm like walking in, telling them what to do and walking out or, you know what I mean? So it's right. It's very strange dynamic how it it translates into relationship. Can you talk a little bit about your dynamic with um, Natalie Figuera on the show, yeah, played yeah. by Alicia Reiner? That's right. Um, I mean, you guys had such great chemistry in the last season. <laughs> <laughs> it's chemistry, right? <laughs> it's something. <laughs> yeah. The writers are just unbelievable. You know, they they don't let anything go. That's what I'm fascinated by. And the storytelling aspect is that they, you know, they plant stuff. And sometimes I don't even know if they're planting it on purpose or not, you know, in relationship, like threads. But they know it's there and they just kind of go back and keep building on it and giving it layers and layers. And I mean, I would never think that I, you know, I was going to wind up in fig, you know, because of our relationship. And I, really, I, was, I read it. I was like, I cannot believe. I, I'm like, ah, this is incredible. So how early on did you feel like you had a really good read on Caputo? Did you know exactly his deal from the get-go or did you sort of find I was, your way? I, was, I found my way. I was making choices as I went. And I, I think that's what the writers were doing also. I think that they were seeing what I – what quality I was bringing to him and sort of part of what I was making his struggle. And I think it's almost like they saw the wound and... <laughs> well, I was going to ask. <laughs> we're like, you... let's stick our finger right in here. <laughs> Do you think of him as sad? Yeah. He's very sad. He's tortured. He's middle management. Uh, middle management cannot make anyone happy. There's no winning. And he's in a failed system or... Uh, I don't even want to say failed. I think it probably that sister, the prison system is working just like it was planned to work, which is sad and unfortunate. But he's in that. So, yeah, he's sad. Is there anything you can tell us about what the larger themes going into season four are? I know for Caputo, the, the stakes certainly get higher. And on the season, you know, they moved us to drama and the Emmys mm-hmm. and that whole thing. <laughs> We're in the right yeah. We're in the right one now. So if that says anything about this season, it's 
whoa. Yeah, it's intense. Acting on the show, did it feel like the show was more of a comedy to begin with and that it actually changed, or do you feel like it was just mislabeled? No, I, I think, and it's a testament to Genji. I don't think she she gave a shit either way. I mean, I think her thing was she she was going to go for laughs when she wanted and she was going to humanize these people as much and make them as dimensional as, as she can. And when she can grab a laugh, she'll grab a laugh. And when she needs to make it serious, she's going to make it serious. I mean, that was a big thing when I read it. I was like, what's the tone? I had no idea. I, I certainly didn't try to play comedy or, you know, I, I just went for it in my way. And after the first season... I sort of loved doing that, like not knowing the show. And then when we went in the set, so I didn't watch, and I still haven't watched the show. Ever? Ever. Uh, I, no, I watched the three premieres because I went to the premieres. So I didn't want to mess around and like watch what other people, like what this tone was, what it was. And mm-hmm. I sort of like that. I think it's special because they can't place it. It's not one thing or the other. And why does it have to be? Are there things that you think about for Caputo that are not in the script that that you sort of hold on to during your performance? Yeah, I mean, I build my performance out of, like, a lot of my ideas and thoughts of what his life is like at home. And, I, I mean, I do some of that stuff. And I'm consistently sort of poking at that part of myself and seeing what I can find. And when I say that part of myself, you say Caputo is sad and... And he's somewhat tortured, and, and, and he wants so much for, you know, this idea of wanting to be a hero, or like in, in season three was mm-hmm. his backstory, was this idea of that. That was very much a part of, like, the way I thought of him, and also how that can get in your way, because it's it's ego-based. Okay, you want to be a nice guy. You want everybody to like you. You want everybody to love you. You're holding the doors open for people, and then you're, pissed off when they don't say fucking thank you well then what'd you hold the door for so i i think these ideas are are things that i uh i keep close to me when i'm playing with him and i'm consistently sort of watching that inside myself one of the things that i think about a lot on the show is how time is addressed because basically time on the show is moving extremely slowly because you know we only have i guess piper's incarcerated for like 18 months maybe total yeah. mm-hmm. that's like the sentence we're told uh in the right. pilot so so far the show has covered only really like a few months like and you like is that di- true really just well, a few like months? think of how like like it's i mean dia has been pregnant for three seasons right like right. true <laughs> like, no, that's right so, yeah. that's in and around the time i think yeah. i think dia's thing is, is sort of a that's bit. like our time marker mm-hmm. right? we've celebrated christmas and mother's day but right. that's about it, right? Like the, that's yeah, the extent so, of our sort yeah. of time structure. So on the one hand, time for the the characters is moving slowly, but our you know regular time is moving the way it does. <laughs> I know. And so it's hard. Sometimes you feel like ah, oh, nothing's changing, but then it's like, well, it's only two days later to them. It's three episodes later to me. But right. do you feel like you try to play like how hard is it to balance that feeling of like okay, well, very little time has lapsed for the character, but I myself have been living with him for four years now. Yeah. There's like how how does that tension work when you're trying to perform something and play it real to the character and and now it's a little harder because you yourself have diffs do you is that harder no i don't think so i mean i 
I don't. Uh, other other than, <laughs> I don't know how long they're going to go on. <laughs> I'm going to be eight years older. <laughs> I'm going to have so much less hair <laughs> by the end. <laughs> by the end. This by the end, they're going to be like, Caputo. "Wow, this was this was a rough nine months for Caputo." <laughs> it looks like he's aged. <laughs> um, no, I, it doesn't really. Time doesn't seem to even come in to my headspace as far as that goes. And, as far as the 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 construct of the show, I, I I think now that they built this thing that it could play out with anybody. I don't think the show really is about one person anymore. And I mean, we can take Taylor out. Why, why can't we watch her after the end of the next season? Why can't we watch her try to readjust? I mean, right. I think that's is this your way of telling us that that's what happens in season? Oh, I have no idea. Oh God, I hope not. <laughs> No, I have no idea. I was trying to catch you. Okay, <laughs> maybe we'll see. No, I, I no, I have no idea. I, I'm just like you, looking at as a fan, saying, "Wow, look at this! They, they built this, and now it can look at how it can play. You know, it can play in so many different ways." And I think that that's their their commitment to each character is, you know, they 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 give each character so much dimension that it's not about one person. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think that's what makes it special too. Do you have any sense of how long the show would go on for? Is it kind of just open-ended at this no, point? We, we never know. It's yeah. like I could, I, I mean, who knows? Uh, this could be my last episode. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> you know, we don't even know really if we come back. They don't tell us if the show is going to continue after this season. Right. So maybe somebody up there knows. But I, I, listen, I, I don't. I don't think it's going anywhere too fast. It's you know very popular and people love it. So when you were first considering this show, how much were you like, well, what's it going to be like having a Netflix TV show? Did that cross your mind? Was that a concern? Or yeah, what did what? you think about? I mean, I, what I knew of Netflix was the little red envelopes. You know, I was, uh, you know, you put it in the oh, mailbox. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love the script. And I was like, I'm going to do this. And then they said, oh, well, you're going to make this. And I said, no, that, that that's real. You're not, you're not joking, right? That's, really? That's it? That's it? That's, <laughs> that's what you're, you're paying me? They're like, yeah, that's that's what you're getting paid. And I was like, all right, I'll do it. I, I, I love the script, and I, I thought, you know, there was something to do with that character, and I'm really happy I did. Has it been crazy seeing Netflix grow? I mean, they put out 10 original shows this year. I believe last year it was only two. Do you watch Netflix shows? Do you... I watch keep up. <laughs> House of Cards. I can't keep up. Yeah. I'm, I'm really bad and behind on so much TV. I mean, I'm still watching The Wire. <laughs> so, I know that. <laughs> I saw your face. That's an old show. That's it's good. a good show, no, but and I, it's never too late to watch The Wire. I had to go back. But I just back. mean, that's, yeah. you know, no, I know you it's have really quite old. a backlog if I you're have, just getting I The Wire. Have a, <laughs> I have a backlog. <laughs> so, no, but I watch House of Cards. I think that's it on Netflix. I, I like Girls a lot. Girls is great. Yeah. I thought Girls last season was great. Yeah. Did it I, secretly make you want to go to graduate school, even though that wasn't the premise of the episodes? Yeah. I, you know, I I did. I, I loved this taking her out of the city. I loved it. It was just like, I, I don't know. I, I always love episodes, or, or and this was like a season, when they take the character sort of, and they make a little movie with them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like, separate from everything we know around their world 
there, I don't know. There's something about that mechanism that I, I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> take, like, take me, you're taking me away or something. Yeah. Can you tell us about what else you're working on right now? You have a movie, The Wannabe, that did it premiere at Tribeca, I believe? It did. It premiered yes. at Tribeca, and it goes VOD uh, right away. Uh, so it'll be up at, uh, on, you know, iTunes and wherever you can press buttons and get movies <laughs> and all that. Yeah, it's very exciting. I'm I'm really happy with the movie. I wrote the script and started getting around uh, the producer, uh, Mike Gasparro. He, uh, um, he's the first person I gave it to, and he's like, I, I think we should do this. We should we should do it. And we, we started getting it around. I had directed a, a first feature called Ponies based on a Mike Batistic play that I did at Michael Imperioli's theater a while ago, and that was my first feature. So I had that under my belt, and I said, I, I, I'd really like to direct this one. And... So we started getting around, and we we uh, got it to Vincent Piazza, who plays the lead, and he came on board, and we got it to Patricia Arquette, and she she plays the other lead, and she came on board, and and then we got it to uh, Martin Scorsese, and he came on board. He said, you know, I I I love the script. What do you want to do? And we said it'd be awesome if you would exec it, and he uh, he came on board to exec it, and we got the money and. We made it. We shot 20 days, 35 locations in New York Whoa. City with not a lot of money. And, yeah, it was a, an incredible experience. I mean, it just uh, to take it from it, – it was my first time writing something and taking it all the way through. And I loved writing. It's it's really beautiful and intimate to, to write and sit down and mm-hmm. create. And when you're in the room and you think you're a genius <laughs> – Nobody's read it yet. <laughs> I lo- it feels really good. Um, then you get it out, and you know it's not the same. Uh, but that process was great, and and uh, filming it was just magical. We had a great crew, and we had just great actors. Michael Imperioli is in it. Dominic Lombardozzi, Vincenzo Amato, John Ventimiglia. Uh, so I had this like incredible New York cast that uh, came on board to help me and take this huge boulder up the mountain you know you have 20 days and in new york it's like it's it's a real short amount of time it's short yeah (laughs) it's a real feat it's 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 a rough thing to do it's madness so that's its own beast and i like that and then i love i love editing i I like getting in the room it's it's very much like painting it's Mm -hmm. you're laying things next to each other and there's no cops to deal with or trailers or you know mm-hmm. light you're losing light and everybody's screaming and, <laughs> you, know? you can find the the movie on the wannabe movie on instagram facebook and twitter were there things that you sort of picked up on orange is the new black that you were like oh when i'm directing i'm going to use this technique or like gosh when i'm a director i'll never do that <laughs> yeah you know i'm working as an actor for a long time so i've been on a lot of sets and i think with orange because I had directed Ponies, I, I was I was a director, then you know, and, and before that, before you do it, you don't really know what, what it's really what it entails and what everybody's doing. Even as an actor, I mean, I worked probably twenty years before I directed my first film, as an actor, and you you know, you, there's a lot of people on set, and you really you do your best to ignore everybody. I mean, not personally, but you really right. do. I mean, that's your job is like to really be focused and sort of contain yourself, or, or at least that's how I do it. I, you know, and uh, but then once you're 
you do your first one, you know what that, that guy's doing over there and what that guy is doing and what that person is doing. So you, you sort of, it becomes something else. And yeah, with Orange, I, I just, and I knew I was gearing up to shoot. So I was just watching. I just was watching everything and how everything moved. And I was very much intrigued by the camera because I, I spent a long time ignoring the camera as an actor you know you mm-hmm. make believe it's not there you know it's there and you play to it but you don't it's this weird dance you do as an actor but you know i started to more and more watch you know how are they lighting this how are they how how is this going to look and okay oh he's taking that light up and he's, he's putting a scrim and what does that do and going back and checking and seeing what lens they're using and I, I i sort of jumped in that way and i started really prepping that way watching watching you know always so do you want to direct an episode of orange is the new black oh that's an interesting question um i'd have to watch the show <laughs> yeah that'd be a start and and but i do i do think that at at, at this point <clears throat> i i'd feel very comfortable sitting down and watching all the seasons yeah i would i would love to yeah i think so are there things that haven't happened on the show that are on your like wish list either for Caputo himself or just for like the show to cover I'm consistently so surprised by them that I think like everybody else I'm such a fan so I'm like what are you going to give me I'm just like a kid in a candy store and I I'm not reaching because I'm I'm constantly you know blown away and 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 they're giving me stuff that's a reach you know that I'm reaching for so I just keep waiting for what the and fascinated like everyone else is like what they're going to do. Listen, I love that they're. I love this season that they privatized the prison. I love that they're. I I love what they're saying about all that. I love that I'm I'm sort of in the middle of all that. My character is. So I think that I'd like them to keep doing what they're doing and keep it uh, as intense and as as well as they're doing. Really. So do you have like a secret skill that you think maybe Caputo could unleash? It's like actually I'm a qualified ice dancer, and and you'd be surprised. Well, Well, he already has side boobs. I know. You know, when I think about Caputo, I I do. I I I I want so much for him to to be happy. I want so. (laughs) I really do. It's like I'm I'm this person who's really wanting peace for him. You know. But peace is not very dramatic, so <laughs> it's not much of a show. Yeah. Everything went fine. Yeah, and and with these writers, they're you know they'll give it to him. They'll you know they they give him stuff, you know, but they they make him pay for it then. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being yeah, with us, Nick. Today. Thanks, dude. This was fun. Yeah, we had a yeah. lot of fun. This Thank was you a for coming. Oh, cool. Yeah, thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah. Uh, in addition to the movie, is there other stuff that oh, yeah. people can follow you on, like Twitter or Instagram or anything Oh, like yeah. I'm Nick Sandow at Instagram, right? And uh, uh, <laughs> I think. Yeah. And I have another movie I want to make. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah. I, I'm like $300,000 away from being able to make it at the end of January. So anybody out there who's got three hundred grand, let me know. <laughs> Give us a little taste of what the movie's about. Yeah, right? Who knows who's listening? It's, it's a wonderful script. It, it was written by Frank Pugliese, who's a writer and uh, producer on uh, House of Cards. It's a, a, the weekend in the life of a uh, middle-aged ex-pro football player who's sort of walking through his life in a very minimal way, coming to grips with having dementia. So it, it, wow. it's heavy. Ooh. That sounds really it heavy. Is, it's heavy, I know. It, it, is, <laughs> it is heavy, but it's really beautiful in, in, in so many ways. 
All right, wealthy listeners, now's your chance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're close. We have 70% of the money. Uh, <laughs> that's my pitch. <laughs> that's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. We'd like to thank Sam Dingman, Sarah Abdurrahman, Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. I'm Gazelle Amami, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Margaret Lyons, and you can find me on Twitter at Margin Charge. I'm Matt Zoller-Seitz, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller-Seitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.